Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Michael Stanley Gallisdorfer as my guest. Michael holds a PhD in geography and builds upon a unique and multidisciplinary skill set, making him a global water expert. In this week's episode, we'll dive into the hidden value of water and how to reclaim and maximize it in our cities. Throughout this fascinating conversation, Michael will reveal to us how we used to close and now reopen the rivers in our cities for roughly the same set of legitimate reasons, and how every dollar invested in river restoration actually provides a $4 return on investment. He'll take us through several case studies and research examples, and he'll explain the environmental and human benefits of lively river streams in the heart of our towns. In our conversation, we also address perks and pitfalls of semi-natural ecosystems, how 60s urbanization miracles became modern nightmares, the three new and updated reasons why people want to go to cities, how better technical understanding and digitization enables to engineer with nature, but also sponge cities, blue-green infrastructure, water fun, water incubator, and more. There is so much on this week's agenda that we shall take off without delay. So I'll just remind you that you can help with spreading the word. Please, if you like this podcast, share this episode with at least two people. And if there's anything you don't like about the show or a topic you'd like us to cover, just drop me a word, ideally on LinkedIn. Do it, share it, I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm really good. And you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. It's a beautiful 23, 24 degree early oh, early to mid-morning right now. Bright and brilliant with a bright blue sky. So that is somehow the beginning of your postcard that you're sending from Buffalo today. Can you tell me something about Buffalo? I mean, the name is already quite a story, but uh, I would be interested to have your most crispy anecdote about Buffalo. Well... Buffalo is, <laughs> you know, it's a uniquely magical city in its own way. It has a tremendously interesting history. And one of the fun things about Buffalo is that in the late 18th century, when the city was founded, when people first came to this region of the United States, it was the, you know, the Western frontier at that point, to be buffaloed <laughs> meant to be tricked. <laughs> so it has sort of a slang to it. And also there's a, a fun little bit about the name too which is that, so the Ellicott family, they spoke a version of Dutch. And people have been wondering about the name of Buffalo for years. You know, does it come from French, Beaufleuve? And I think it comes from a kind of Dutch to Flemish dialect, similar to Brussels, you know, the idea of Brussels. Because Brussels, you know, as we pronounce it in American English, it's marshy land. And Buffalo was sighted at the confluence of a few creeks, the Niagara River, and it's on Lake Erie, where it turns into the Niagara River. And so it was on this marshy, rich land. And it literally means, I think, 
great place to live because, you know, we're water people. That's what we do. So it's fantastic because from your postcard already, we can tell that you seem to have kind of an inclination towards the meaning of things, this geography aspect of, of things, which we'll uncover in a second. But it's really, really interesting to see that from the very beginning of the conversation, we can feel that. And actually, I have to say that, and don't, don't take me wrong here, but to me, you're a, a UFO in that water, water sector. I've seen you in many occasions uh, across LinkedIn, to be transparent, not physically, of course, in, in these strange times we're living, but I've seen you in many discussions, many debates, many topics. And all the time you come with uh, something really crispy or really accurate, really straight to the point. And I'm like, what's your core expertise? Because it seems to me like there's no barrier, no frontier. So maybe you have to test that today. But if I ask you this simple question, what is your core expertise? What's your story with this water world? <laughs> of course, I'll give you a, the technical terminology and the plain language version of that, if that's okay with you. So by training, I am an applied multidisciplinary physical geographer. So I'm a combination of a scientist who has some degree of engineering expertise with a lot of expertise in geospatial analysis. And I'm also heavily imbued in the world of philosophy and theory. So, <laughs> I mean, I can, I can talk intelligently about digital water or, you know, Heidegger or Kant or, or, you know, the Taoist approach to the I Ching. And the whole point of that is from the academic perspective that I was trained in, that's, you know, I got, a, I have a PhD in geography from the University at Buffalo. From that perspective, it's about seeing the whole picture of water because water is literally what connects all of us. It is the low point on the landscape and it is the low point in human society. Without water, there is no civilization. So in plain language, in plain language, what do I do? I think about water people in cities. I think about what water does for people in cities and how we relate to water and how we can maximize the value of water to people in cities through proximity to water. Because by being close to water, we are able to enjoy its benefits fully because Tobler's first law of geography is everything is related to everything else, but things that are close together are more related than things that are further apart. And that's what cities do. They concentrate people and energy. And I think that water plays a huge role in that. And we know from history that it does. Does that make any sense? That makes a lot of sense. But still, I would question how and why water. I mean, water is a key element, as you, you alluded to. But why water specifically? I mean, you could have looked at, I don't know, urbanization or... I'm not a geographer right now, so I don't have a clever example to bring you. But, but why water? Think about, think about what we need as human beings. We need water because it provides us with water to grow food and a, a route by which to transport ourselves, you know, goods and provide services. So before we had the engineering expertise to build roads, say, we used water because it comes down to friction. Cities grow up at the confluence of commercial routes and human routes. And that's what water provides. It's the place where things meet and cities grow there because that's where we conduct commerce and live our lives. It's the place where we are human. And if we go very far back, if you think about the, the temple of Enki at Eridu in old Sumer, 
you know, think think about you know the symbolism associated with Enki. It's the you know the cosmic spring. There's this water symbology that's replete throughout history. So it's encoded into our beliefs and our mythology too. Water is the center of our life. That's why water matters. It provides for us. And if we think about, the, I think the word is ma'an. You know, ma'an in Arabic means people and water. You know, ma'an kind. <laughs> so water people. It's interesting because that makes for a smooth transition, of course, into our deep dive for today, which is this uh, this element of water as a center element in, in the cities. But, but before diving into that, and that's kind of a question I would somehow put in the fridge because we are taking it later on, I guess, in our discussion. But everything you just explained makes a lot of sense if you look at history and if you look at the, the early roots of, of water as a root, as a source of life, as something you drink, as something you use to irrigate your crops. But I have the feeling that this central place of water kind of got lost within time and with the evolution because as long as we didn't have anything, if you don't have roads, you need to have a river. But if you have the roads, then the river is maybe less important. The river needs to be clean if you don't know how to clean the water yourself. So I, I would say my feeling right now, and you're going to correct me in, in the next hour, I guess, but my feeling is that water has been central at the very early ages of, of humanity, and maybe it lost a bit of the central place through evolution. And one could debate how much that's an evolution and not a regression. But let's start from those roots. You've alluded already to, to this element that cities were built around water because it was a good proxy to replace the roots that were not existing yet. But is that the, the full story or is there something else? I mean, why Paris is next to the Seine? Why, why London is next to the Thames River? Why uh, New York is next to the, uh, the Hudson River? Is there a reason beyond the fact that a river is, is a good replacement for a route? Well, I think of rivers also... That's a we broad think, question. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> a very broad question. And I'll, and I'll approach it, of course, from a, you know, a geographic and a spatial perspective. So, okay, when I think about the phenomenology of a river, you know, what is a phenomenology? It's sort of the, it's the experienced form of a river. Yes, of course, we have the functional use values of rivers as roots, and there's also the ecosystem services that rivers provide. You know, services like historically, say in London, for example, a lot of those small rivers in London, the, the creeks, rivers, tributaries of the Thames, they provided food for people. So people grew up and they built their homes and, and did business where, where they were close to food. Because remember, we couldn't, we didn't have access to all of the energy that we do these days. We didn't have oil wells natural gas wells, nuclear energy. So we had to stay close to our sources of food and fresh water. And were the sources of food, and this is all you know, theoretical and speculative from my perspective, there's probably some research out there that can establish it, but I, I'm not familiar with it. Places like, say, let's look at London. Why London? Why London where London is? Well, some of the richest salmon runs occurred in those small tributaries to the Thames. And you could go there and you can get food easily. So it's about, it's about minimizing energy, right? You want to be efficient. <laughs> you want to be efficient as a person because any energy that you waste is energy that goes away from survival and reproduction. So rivers provide this geographic locus because they're edges. They're connection points and edges. And where we see connection points and edges, we see opportunities for exchange. And in the case of the example of, you know, say, fishing for salmon, 
in the place that became London, that edge, that barrier was a way for people to easily transition from land to water and get services like food with it at the same time. Now, I remember also, so I lived in Germany for a short while. I lived in a I lived in the north in a place called Braunschweig, and I, we visited a place called Goslar in the Harz Mountains. And one of the reasons that I bring this up is because rivers also provided power for people too. Remember, before we had access to a lot of energy, as I mentioned before, you could use the force of flowing water to turn a wheel, and that generated power. And so if you have a mining industry that needs to run a bellows so you could smelt, you know, I think it was silver that was being smelted, that was being uh, sort of extracted from ore in Goslar, you know, which was an imperial capital, you needed the water there. So cities grew up around water because it provided power too. There's a reason for that. And perhaps, I don't know much about the origins of Paris, but I think that there may be similar reasons for that also. Now, another place I lived in Germany, to give another example of, to think through this geographically, of course, is I lived in a, a place called Würzburg in a Franconia. And the Main River flows there by the Marienburg Festung, the fortress. And remember, rivers provide microclimates also, and that's wine country. So if you are trying to minimize the energy that it takes to survive, thrive, and reproduce, if you settle by water, that water is going to moderate the climate and perhaps even extend your growing season. And then to draw that back home here to you know Buffalo, New York, here to the Niagara region, western New York, near southern Ontario, Canada, we have these lakes too. So when when you're in when you know when you're an apple grower, we have a lot of fruit growers around here. We have some grape growers too. It's a rich agricultural region. There's a wine country here too. You want to <laughs> you want to kind of hedge your bets. And by living near water, water is a, a heat sink. It will moderate climate and it, let, it lets you know that your fruit's not going to freeze. Your grapes aren't going to die on the vine and you have access to the resources you need to grow the grapes. <laughs> you know, people, you know, how do you turn water into wine? You grow grapes. It's still a miracle, right? So that's a little bit more about cities and why they grew up by water. It's about minimizing energy. It's the low point, like literally. It moderates it moderates the rates of change, the temperature of the area that you might be living in and growing food in, and it makes it easier for you to live there because it's more certain. You're reducing uncertainty. So does that make any sense? Yeah, there's a negative side to it as well. If you're next to a river, there's chances that the floods come from that river at some point. And you mentioned fresh water. Of course, a river is, is a source of fresh water as soon as you're the one which is really upstream, because if you're downstream, it's also a source of lots of, of waste from all the ones which are upstream on that same river. So how did humanity overcome the, those two risks, I would say? Well, there's a few different ways. I mean, one, think about water sources. So people typically weren't drinking water out of rivers because of the problem that you mentioned, Anthony. You know, we we have this upstream downstream problem, you know, who knows what's going in upstream? You can't necessarily trust it downstream. But people were using spring water. So people would find fresh water sources that were outside of the main stem of the river, and that's how they typically overcame the problem of drinking water. And you may see in a lot of older cities a, a lot of uh large reservoirs were built to capture spring water, which was then either fed by gravity or, or pumped later in time to the population. That's what allowed these cities to grow, you know, access to this clean water. And then rivers, of course, became 
routes for transportation and sources of food. Now, flooding, yes, of course, flooding is a big problem, but we've overcome flooding at least historically in many ways. The the easiest way to overcome flooding is you just don't build on the floodplain. You just don't build there. And we stopped doing that recently because we, you know, there's sort of this human hubris, this uh this idea that we can do whatever we want wherever we want. We can make nature submit to us. And the answer is, well, no. In the plainest terms, no. Because we are part of nature. That's it. We are part of nature. And how else do we overcome flooding in modern cities? Well, there's a number of new methods that are being adopted. Now, I'll look at the older methods first. And we're talking about things like large-scale mega engineering projects, you know, dam-based flood control, flood retention reservoirs, something to capture the water before it gets to the city so that the city doesn't get washed away. Well, that works, but there's a lot of costs to that also. You know, we lose all of the ecosystem services of the river by simplifying the river system by disconnecting it from its floodplain we lose all of the nutrient processing capacity in the floodplain we lo- we lose a lot of the breeding and juvenile habitat for the fish species that we used to be able to fish out of rivers and you know we also aren't thinking long term when it comes to those sort of large scale diversion and flood retention projects we did them because we could do them because it made sense we understood the mathematics. We understood the engineering. And it worked, but we didn't see the downsides. You know, it's unifunctional. Get one job done. Now, that's evolved over time. So what's happening these days is that now we're smarter. I'm optimistic. You know, we've gotten smarter as people, <laughs> right? I'm a believer in humanity. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of human beings, not just because I'm one of them, but because I like them too. <laughs> so we've gotten smarter. And what do I mean by that? Well, Think about the effect, think about the long-term effects of developing our computational power. You know, we get integrated circuits, and here we are 40 years later, and we've got a digital economy. So what that means from sort of a scientific perspective, an engineering perspective, is we can now model natural systems with a high degree of resolution, you know, fairly accurately. No model is perfectly accurate, but digital modeling allows us to get a sense of how these systems behave without having to actually wait for the flood to happen. And because we have more complex means of understanding how these natural systems work, these rivers work, we can then regulate them in more natural ways. So the Army Corps of Engineers, the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Engineer Research and Development Center called ERDIC, they call it ERDIC for short, there is this initiative called the Engineering with Nature Initiative. And it seeks to understand how to more effectively and, of course, more efficiently, lower energy cost, right? How to use nature and natural methods to regulate floods. Now, what does this mean for cities? Well, I mean, cities are kind of complicated because we have all this sunk cost, you know, all the capital expenses of our infrastructure, which means that we might not be able to regulate rivers and cities in the most natural way. But there are some opportunities, especially in cities like Buffalo, where, you know, we've lost a lot of the urban core population. So to kind of recap that idea right there, yeah, you know, we've gone from simple to more complex. And now that we have more complex ways of seeing floods, of seeing rivers. We have opportunities to do a better job by working with and mimicking nature. The big term right now is biomimicry. So hopefully that gets some insight into the question. Yeah, let me deconstruct what you just said, because there's a lot in what you just explained. <laughs> um, I really want to dive much deeper into this retaking of the natural side of things. But just before, you know, if you've been walking into cities uh, and not so long ago, you know, 
I'm not that old. And yet I, I recall when I was working through my, my hometown, I had no clue there was a river there. And then currently they're, they're working around that and the river is, is back into the city. But that, that river has always been there. It just, it was, it was covered with, with concrete and that is not a single story. And what I like here to address is why at some point did we hide the rivers? Why did we cover them? Why were the city growings on top of the rivers and not around the rivers anymore? Because before explaining how we recover from that, it's important to understand why we went down that route. Well, the simplest answer I can think of is that we weren't thinking about it and it was easier. And I can give you a good example from from my hometown, from Buffalo. So as the city was growing in the 19th century, so Buffalo was the western terminus of the Erie Canal. You know, the Erie Canal connected the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes, creating this extensive seaway. Now, the population was growing more rapidly than we could really figure out what to do with it. And people were getting sick. You know, you would get cholera. There were these terrible cholera epidemics. You know, and that kind of brings, you know, we could talk about COVID later if we wanted and how it might affect water. But to get back to the point, when you have human waste and industrial waste going into waterways that are open, they are like open cesspools. They're breeding grounds for pestilence. And the quickest thing to do is to cover them up and say, all right, this is now a sewer. And that's what happened here in Buffalo. I think it was in the 1850s after some of the early 19th century cholera epidemics. The first sewer, the Great Interceptor Sewer, you know, has this wonderful title, the Great Interceptor. It's like something out of, out of like, you know, Star Trek. <laughs> it's like something in space, sci-fi. But, you know, back then sewers were kind of sci-fi technology. They were new. We hadn't known sewers since, you know, Roman times. So anyway, the Great Interceptor Sewer was built. And it just captured all that waste that was going downslope into the smaller creeks in the area. Instead of putting it upstream, as we talked about before, it just put it right into the lake. And then it washed over Niagara Falls. So that's kind of how the process began. And then later on, I can give you another example. As the city grew further and industrialized, you know, another creek uh, called Skajakwita Creek was just covered over with concrete, too, because it just stunk. It was an eyesore. And the easiest thing to do is just to integrate these natural water systems, you know, creeks, streams, rivers, to integrate them into the emerging city sewer systems because, well, we can't have dirty water around people because it's a public health hazard. So that's kind of how it happened. People just had to get it done, right? And remember, what do we always do? We do what we can do. What you mentioned as well is we were able to do it, so we did it. And I think that's that's an important element because, you know, I'm living just next to the Rhine River. And the Rhine River has a cool history with that. It's You mentioned the, the many functions of the river, but one of the river's function is also to be a border. And historically, the Rhine River is the border between France and Germany. And the Germans found out much before, long before the French, that they could domesticate the Rhine River. And before the Rhine River was really moving from year to year, and within a decade, it could move by like 100 kilometers to the east or to the west. And of course, if that river is flowing far to the east, then France is much bigger. And if it's flowing far to the west, then Germany is much bigger. And as the Germans were able to domesticate the river, they just domesticated it the further on the west side they could. And that way, they gained kind of a 100 kilometer land on the French side. And that stayed that way for a long time until... There were some big flood events, and then everybody recalled that they were in 
I mean, the Rhine was flowing here and the people were living here, but the Rhine is much stronger than houses or anything you can build. And that brings you back this kind of humility element. And that's spectacular when we talk about the Rhine, but when we talk about the rivers within the cities, there's also that element that there's a good reason why a river is behaving like it behaves. It's because that's a way to slow it down, to give it some chance to bring some alluvions and to let them there and to settle and everything. And if you put everything into a concrete wall, well, velocities go through the roof and the risk becomes much higher as well. So it's somehow arrogant as a human to say, I can domesticate nature and nature doesn't like arrogance. And at some point you have to pay the bill. <laughs> There is always a price to pay. You will never, ever, ever beat the river. <laughs> However, you can dance with it. And <laughs> that's the change I think we're seeing in this world. You know, to bring it to a big thought, you know, we're learning to work with nature and dance with our rivers once again. Because as you mentioned, when we put our streams into concrete boxes, what we're getting is, you know, we're getting we're getting conveyance. You know, we're optimizing our engineering design for flow conveyance. One thing that we can get done. But what we're losing, what we're losing is so much more too. We're losing the dynamism of the river. We're losing its ability to, to refresh and restore the land, to return it to life. And what happens when we don't work in cycles, because nature works in cycles, just like we do. When we take the cycles away and linearize a natural system so that we can predict it and control it, we think at least, we lose its ability to regenerate and to restore itself. And that's what we lost in cities too. You know, there's this concept of urban stream deserts now. It's actually a more recent concept from a, a researcher, I think out of Detroit, Michigan, USA, uh, Napuralski. And Napuralski has been looking at the concept of urban stream deserts. Are you familiar with the concept of the food desert? Nope, nope. Okay, so... Let's hold the thought of a river has to run free in order to rejuvenate the land. Okay, so let's hold that for a moment. Now, there's this parallel concept of the food desert. So when there's food deserts in, say, an, an inner city where people just don't have access to food, they don't have easy access to the resources they need to survive. Now, when we don't have rivers in cities, wait a minute, what did we lose when we put them into concrete boxes? Well, <laughs> well, we lost a lot. We lost access to those critical environments, those human habitats that help us to recover from stress. Because, okay, there might be a river somewhere in the countryside, but if you don't have a car, if you're a person who is living in poverty or working hard, a working class person in a city, you don't have time to drive two hours to a pristine stream in a beautiful country park. You just don't have that which means that you don't have access to those restorative experiences. Remember, a river a river doesn't just refresh a floodplain. It refreshes the mind. It restores the mind of people. And so a stream desert is a lack of access to a restorative blue water landscape. We talk about you know greenscapes, but remember there's bluescapes too. There's riverscapes, and we, we lack riverscapes in cities. When we lack those riverscapes, we're losing out. Our people are suffering because we need to be around ideal human habitat. And that's water and forests. Is there a way to quantify that? Were there studies that try to identify what that meant? 
I yes, I cannot give you the exact data right now. I just can't give it to you off the top of my head. But let me think about this. Let me dig. Let me dig deep into my mind for a moment. Like I mentioned, I think it was the Napierowski studies that really showcased that there was a lack of streams, and of, of course, it was because of stream burial. Now there is some evidence, and I was criticized. <laughs> I was criticized for this during my dissertation defense because you know what? There's just a lack of evidence. But I believe that there is a way to quantify this. And here's how I would do it. And I'm going to draw it to a previous example. So it's a previous. It's some work that was done in the early 90s by uh, someone named Ulrich. So I'll lay it out. And then we could talk about, you know, say, South Korea after that, if you wish, because there's a good example of why that place works, too. So anyway, to bring it back to how to quantify this, how do we quantify this? We measure human stress by tracking things like you know, biomonitoring. So we want to monitor people's, you know, physiology. We want, we want to see how people respond to stress. And we can measure various aspects of human experience, uh, cortisol levels, heart rate, and similar. You know, I'm not, I'm not a physiologist, so I can't give you the exact numbers, but this would be a multidisciplinary study. And then we just examine people who don't have access to rivers in cities. We examine people who do have access to rivers and cities. And then maybe we examine another group that's living in the country by a river too, and just compare all that data. Of course, this would be a wonderful big data project. This would be a huge data science project. So that's how I would do it. I would look at people's stress levels and markers for stress with and without rivers, and then say, all right, if, uh, <laughs> if you have more exposure, if you have greater proximity and more frequent interaction with urban streams, urban rivers, you're probably going to be less stressed. And if you're less stressed, you're going to be happier and healthier, and you're going to be able to contribute to society. You're going to be able to add more to the world because happy, healthy people make a better world. And what makes a great country and a great world? Happy, healthy people who can work together and engage in more complex social behaviors. Because getting back to the idea of energy, when you're not happy and healthy, you're spending a lot of energy on coping just to manage that stress. And if having a river in a city, like literally three or four blocks from your house, if you can walk there and it's easy to go to, you can get there. And it, it, this is a form of environmental justice also. You know, think about the value of a river to environmental justice and social justice in cities. If you feel better... I fully subscribe to what you said. I really fully subscribe. And, and that makes a lot of sense in terms of both scientific evidence uh, and with the, the, this goal in mind to, to do good for the society. I fully get that. But if I take a bit of cynicism, you know, I'm pretty surprised that we were conscious enough as a society that nature is so important and that the rivers are so important that we started acting on that. And I'm, I'm trying to, to see if there's not a hidden agenda behind that. Because to my understanding, you know, you, you shortly alluded to COVID and that COVID situation has been referred to a lot like the first time in history that uh, humankind is putting health above economy. I don't know if it's the first time or not, and that's not my debate. My debate is rather, it's, it's still surprising to us when we see that we are putting our, our well-being above other considerations. So when you see that movements that people bring back rivers into cities, are you just clapping and saying, hey, that's awesome because finally we are putting well-being at the top of everything else? Or do you also see probably there's a hidden agenda and, well, we can live with the hidden agenda because... What matters is that the rivers come back with their benefits. Well, well, guess what? You know, there's also, I don't know if it's a hidden agenda. There's also evidence out there that 
restoring rivers and restoring water features in cities has economic value too. So I guess I'll touch on three points here. And I'll organize these three points according to, you know, the uh, Robert Wood Johnson model of community health. You know, Robert Wood Johnson, I think, was from Johnson & Johnson way back when. And the model basically focuses on environment, economy, and society. Okay. So when we restore rivers and cities, you know, the Buffalo River in my hometown, of course, was, you know, it, it recently got some funding from a program called the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, uh, GLRI. The Great Lakes Restoration Initiative you know, did work over the past, I think, 25, 30 years. And uh, a number of researchers, I think, out of the University of Michigan, found that in cities like Buffalo and Detroit, it adds $4 for every $1 spent on restoration work to the economy. So it has economic value. So there's a one point. That's the economy point. Four and one, just, just to be sure I get that right. That means every dollar you put in restoration of river gives you a return on money of, of four. Of four to one. And guess what? From the data that I've seen out of the Hartig paper, it's H-A-R-T-I-G and others, Hartig. The data I've seen says that, yeah, the effects are concentrated in cities because of, of course, proximity. And yeah, you get four to one, four to one return on investment. And that's a conservative number. You know, they're being good scientists. They're being good scientists figuring out, you know, what is what we can defend. So there it is. Yeah, you restore a river in a city. What's the lever to that? How do you get this return on, on money? Because it's it's an impressive number. Let me think about this for a moment. Hmm. What are the mechanisms by which it by which it works? Well, I think I think the simplest way of putting this is that people need places to live that they enjoy. So how does it work? When you restore a river in a city, there's lots of business development that occurs along it. Because think about the effect of, say, tourism. You know, if you're going to go to a place, you want to spend time in a beautiful place, and a nice-looking river is a great place to spend time, too. There's also a lot of recreational benefits, too. You know, the, the recreational benefits of river restoration create healthier people. You know, so it's opportunities for recreation and a chance to build public health. And the numbers that we get come from, I think, land value, because land value also goes up. There's economic activity, and then there's the value of land by restored streams. So it's a good idea. And I remember reading also, this is actually one of my LinkedIn posts from a while ago. It's about uh, the stream in Korea. The, uh, what is, how do I pronounce it properly again? The Cheonggichon? The Cheonggichon stream? Yes. I'm glad that you tried it and not me because I was going to say like, something like Cheongyu Cheong, but. I, I always have to <laughs> remind myself, you know, I'm, I'm human. I have to remind myself of, <laughs> of how to say things sometimes. I admit I am fallible. But I check my hubris at all the points. No, no hubris. Just always just going for the truth. Getting back to the rivers and cities, yeah, that's how it works. Increases in land value. I think that the Hartig paper looked at land value and economic exchange. And then, of course, there's, the, there's all these unquantified benefits. You know, we could talk about quantification of the benefits of restoring rivers all day long. There's all the unquantified benefits of, you know, public health improvements. So just like we used to cover up rivers in cities to improve public health, now we're uncovering them and restoring them to improve public health because people feel better around rivers. They're lower stressed and they want to be there because life happens in places. I know we've been online for the past year, you know, staring at screens, but the fact is that life happens in person in real places that are beautiful. And that's what rivers give us in cities. So that kind of touches on the economic and social aspects of the Robert Wood Johnson model of community health. Then, of course, there's the environmental aspects, and that's where we get deeper into the idea of, say, long-term value. You know, rivers, rivers that 
are able to function as rivers wish to, you know, as rivers, I'm not going to attribute intentions, but I'll just say wish to, you know, rivers got to be rivers, right? Just like the Rhine wants to be the Rhine. When they can function that way, we get a return of ecosystem services. So think about how as a river moves across its floodplain, it deposits alluvium, and that's where a number of biogeochemical processes take place. I, I spent a year in a biogeochemistry lab a long time ago, looking at things like, you know, hexavalent chrome reduction, you know, getting rid of toxic metals. But when you have a, a floodplain, that floodplain can sequester nutrients like phosphorus and provide an opportunity for plants to take up nitrogen. So when a river works, when we have a functional wetland in a river, we can actually clean the water too. And that has long-term benefits. Because if you think about Lake Erie, you know, Buffalo, of course, is on Lake Erie. You know, there's lots of nutrient pollution in Lake Erie, and I'm sure there's nutrient pollution in other places around the world. Because think of, how, think of what runoff carries. So if we restore rivers in cities and around cities, they're going to help us have cleaner lakes too, especially freshwater lakes. So the big, big long-term implication is that when we do a better job with rivers, we're helping people, helping the environment long-term, and helping the economy. It's a good idea. You know, society moves in cycles. One day we cover it up, the next day we open it back up. That's just how it works. <laughs> this opening back, and you shortly mentioned this current example of Sheng Yusheng. Maybe you can explain us a bit more in depth what that means, because I think that that's a good example of this circle and how we are now opening back the, the, the rivers, but also that there's not only positive aspects and that probably we still have matter to improve there. But I'll let you tell us the, the, the story, which is a fascinating one. The Chongichan in Seoul, hopefully I pronounced the name correctly. I apologized to all my Korean friends and colleagues. Please correct me. If someone is listening to that and, and knows to pronounce it better, we are really, really keen to have some feedback. Please. <laughs> <laughs> and, but so it's fascinating because I became fascinated with this because it, it's a it's what I call a semi-natural system. It's sort of an augmented ecosystem. So after the Korean War... Seoul is developing, you know, rapidly developing. And at that point, like in a lot of developing nations around the world, economic development is number one. You as a country want your population to get richer because that's a way to social improvement, develop your economy. So a lot of industrialization occurred. A highway was built over this stream that was encased in concrete and it served its purpose. You know, business developed, industry developed, and then Over time, the highway kind of became an eyesore, and people, and it was not pleasant. It was not a pleasant place to be, and it was controversial. And I think that His Excellency Lee Myung Bak, if I pronounce it, he you know, he became I think later the president of South Korea. Mm -hmm. It was controversial at the time. You know, why are we going to take out this highway? Why, why take out this highway? That is the source of our wealth. You know, we need to connect people to jobs. We need to, to, to connect the north side and the south side of Seoul so people can get to work and you don't make money. But as it turned out, it just wasn't doing the job anymore because the, the costs of that highway had outweighed the benefits. The highway was getting older. The area was polluted. And of course, these costs accrue over time. So the choice was made. The choice was made. Let's tear down the highway and restore the stream by creating this augmented ecosystem, this semi-natural system, the one that one that we put our energies into as human beings to make it work. So, okay, this gets done. And lo and behold, <laughs> you know, everyone wants to live there. The land value goes up. It becomes a site for cultural activity. And what do people really want more than anything else? 
they want a great place to live and they want to see each other and be with each other. You know, and this goes to, I think it was a, an, ade- so it's an additional insight into why this works and how it works is provided by a report from a company called Endeavor, Endeavor Insight. And the, the three key findings from Endeavor Insight on why people want to go to cities, what makes a city a great place to be where you want to do business, right? Because Endeavor deals with entrepreneurship and business. Okay, so businesses want three things. They want a high quality of life for their workers. You know, you've got to have a nice place to live if you're going to perform at work, right? Access to markets and an educated workforce. And so getting back to the idea of the Chongqing in Seoul, what did we just create there? What did His Excellency Lee Myung-bak take a, take a chance on and create? He created ideal habitat for people, a place that is low stress and beautiful so that they're happier which means that they're more economically productive. And then, of course, you see the emergence of a number of businesses in the area of the restoration. And it's this new kind of clean business. It's sort of in line with the digital transformation of water that we touched upon a a while ago in this conversation. So that's kind of how it works. It's a change in how we do economy. You mentioned it to be a semi-natural river. If you look at it just from an economical perspective, semi-natural is probably the best way you fully control the river and still it's sufficiently blue and, and open for people to enjoy living next to it but semi-natural has also its drawback i guess for instance uh, if you have a, a concrete basement to your river like like in chongyashong you don't have any kind of of, of life developing within the, the soil of that river because th- there's just no no soil to that river so is it kind of a compromise or is it the, the end goal to have like semi-natural nature? It depends on what you're going for, right? It's always important to think about what your objective is. Like what's the goal? So the goal with Chongqing was to really make a better place to live in the heart of an industrial area and to help to reconnect the city. So yeah, it worked. Remember, you define success according to your goals. And it also sort of proved a point that we can We can create, in partnership with nature, you know, more natural systems that work. And in a lot of ways, it points towards a richer future of working with nature, not against it. Because if we can do it in cities, if we can, if we can create replicable stream processes, you know, a river that we know how it works in a more natural way, we can bring rivers back to cities. And yeah, that's that's what we're doing. But that, that element of working with nature is very important here because actually we touched on flood prevention earlier on. If you have a semi-natural river, you're not really working with a river in terms of flood prevention. You're working with the river because you bring back some blue and green elements to the city. You bring probably back some fishes. You bring back some nice area. And I think some analogies between this Chongqing River and Central Park in New York. And yes, it is a kind of nature, but now if it rains on that river, if there's high precipitations, well, that river is just... Um, an open canal, if I may say so. So um, it's still a concrete base. It's not going to slow down anything. And I would probably even bet to the opposite. It's going to speed up, again, those velocities and, and, and all that stuff. So is there a better way uh, here as well? Or oh, yes, is the compromise? We, and we have the solutions actually in hand. All we have to do is do them. So I mentioned earlier that we have a more complex understanding of how rivers work these days. And 
we have the technical means, the engineering means, to create, you know, not just a semi-natural river, but a, you know, a human augmented hydrology. Now, what does that mean? Well, what if we, instead of leaving everything to nature, we designed our own watersheds to be flood resilient? So because we're running more complex models, complex digital models, and we have a digital twin of our urban semi-natural water system, we know what to do when the rain comes. And this is related to the whole sponge cities concept. We know how to manage that water in a complex and effective way to protect people and deliver ecosystem services in cities. So yeah, it seems like on the surface, we might be running a lot of risks, but the more we do this, the more that we build with nature using digital regulation, digital modeling, we can do it. We can have the river and protect the city from the flood. That's a difficult point, actually, because uh, it can be a conflicting point. I remember, you know, when I was um, doing my engineering studies, uh, I was doing a, a study on the um, eco-district of uh, Freiburg in, in Germany, which was one of the first in Germany. And um, the eco-district had one simple rule, which was we have to be able to treat and cover as much water within that area than if it was just open nature. So you have to think of, of green roofs, but also of, um, of just trenches in the middle of the road where you would have a place for water to, to settle and to, and to, be, to be treated. And this was seen as a huge sign of progress on one end, and on the other hand, as, as a huge regression, depending on if you had your engineering goggles on or if you had your environmental goggles on. And I wonder, because I was working in the district, not when it was built, and it was built probably 20 or 30 years ago, I wonder if mentality has changed so much that everybody now would agree that this is a way forward and that this is, this is a progress, or if there still would be a debate to see, you know, we have these engineering capabilities and it's like giving up what we can just because we say, hey, nature is, is stronger do you think there, there's um, a consensus around the fact that, that is, that's the right way to do things, or is it still a debate today? I think that it's still a debate, but the consensus is rapidly changing towards, yes, we can do this, and we are doing it because it's worth it, right? I remember reading a paper a while ago that related to culture change in agricultural water districts in the Midwestern USA, and what really was preventing change was that practitioners, people like, you know, engineers on the ground doing the work, the language of engineers on the ground doing the work with water systems was not matching the language of the academics, you know, and the academic research engineers. So the problem wasn't a technical problem. It was a problem of trust. And so as, as the water landscape in general changes, the water management landscape we're seeing a greater willingness to adopt new solutions. And it's based upon communication and trust. The problem is not a technical problem. The problem is a problem of communication and getting along and saying, yes, let's try this and feeling free to make a mistake once in a while. Because as an engineer, you know, you don't want to make mistakes because people's lives are at risk. But the more that we try solutions and prove that they can work by doing them as opposed to just modeling them, we will see these changes happen. And what we'll see, I think, long-term, this is me you know, just speculating. I can't predict the future. None of us can. I think that as we begin to quantify the benefits of 
more natural urban rivers, more natural flood control control engineering with nature, better coastal defenses too. I think that we'll start to see an emerging consensus that says, yes, we can do this and we're doing it together because it's worth it because the engineers now have the technical means and they can trust them and they have the evidence to believe it. The folks on the policy side have the data, which says it's better for people and improves the entire health of the nation or the city or wherever you are. And then, of course, we have the long-term environmental benefits. So if that makes any sense, I think that we're going to see the consensus change over time because we're getting towards a world that needs to pay more attention to public health and wellness. Because as in an age where we don't know what's coming next, we've got to be smarter and healthier. There are two things I, I'd like to uh, go a bit deeper in what you just said. Let's start with the first one. You, you, you shortly mentioned sponge cities, and uh, that is a fascinating concept, but not everyone might be familiar with it yet. Can you just explain us what sponge cities are? And, um, and why they are interesting. I'll be really quick about it. Uh, my pal Chandra Dake of Dake Rexand would know a bit more about that because he's done some of the engineering and design work in that area. And uh, maybe Owen Richards from, I think, I think he's in Perth in Australia. No, wait, he's in the south of Australia. But um, let me get to the point of the sponge cities. So, think of, so what sponge cities really do in the simplest form that I can think and explain it as, they replicate parts of the natural hydrological cycle. So instead of falling on impervious surface, you know, those trenches and gutters and roads, the water has a longer flow path between, say, the rooftop of a skyscraper and the natural channel or the semi-artificial channel that we build. So a sponge city acts like the land and the watershed should act in a nature-like way, in a naturalistic way, to create a more natural urban hydrological cycle. So the water works more naturally in cities as opposed to just going you know, at the speed of light, at the speed of water into a drain and killing everything around it, washing everything away. That's called the urban stream syndrome. So sponge cities soak up the water and release it more slowly so that we can have a more natural hydrograph. Does that make any sense? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And where is this concept applied the most? Because what I've seen is that uh, there's quite an intensive use of it in, in China. But what you describe, I mean, what, what I was saying with the Eco District in Germany, it's not called sponge cities, but it's the same principle. So maybe it's just a terminology matter. But it's this general idea of thinking the city to be kind of transparent. If there would be no city, there wouldn't be a big hydrological difference. Is that a concept which which goes everywhere or do you see some, some restrictions or is it really something which you can do if you're rebuilding cities and not having to assume a legacy? Well, it depends upon how far you're willing to go. I think that in China, if the government says, do it, get it done, people are saying, yes, let's do it. And they have that kind of support. So in that situation where there is strong support at all levels of government, and the power to do so, then yes, we can rebuild entire cities and make them <laughs> like they're from nature. Now, in say the USA, it's a little bit more complex. You know, there's there's different levels of governance, and people people might want to be a bit more hesitant because we want to know more first. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing, I think, phased implementation. We're seeing green infrastructure, you know, one project at a time going to help to reduce, say, stormwater inputs to an urban river. But we're going slower about it. And I think that that is a way to satisfy that need to have a better technical grasp because, you know, we want to protect people and help people participate in the process more democratically because people want to have their input, too. And that's that's, I think, one difference. So the governmental structure controls how rapidly it might be implemented. And also think about the nature of different places. 
you know, for example, New York City. Not every city is going to get torn down and rebuilt or rebuilt in a new way. Places that are heavily urbanized might just be better thought of as, say, you know, sacrifices. You know, we're not going to have more nature there. We will have Central Park, but we're not going to have this fully restored naturalistic urban hydrology. We're just going to let that be, and that's okay. But in other cities, uh, and I'll, I'll put in a plug for my own hometown in places like Detroit, you know, Buffalo and Detroit are ideal laboratories for experimenting with green and blue infrastructure. Now, why is that? Because in a lot of the old American industrial cities, we have these hollowed out urban cores. You know, a lot of the population shifted from the urban core to the suburbs, you know, between 1950 and the 1980s. And so what that means is there's a lot of land area left in these cities that's sort of, you know, semi-abandoned. And what that creates is a great opportunity to try innovative green and blue infrastructure solutions. So you know, you couple that with the known benefits of, you know, Great Lakes restoration and restoring water courses along the Great Lakes. We've got a perfect storm for innovation in water infrastructure in America's old industrial cities. So, you know, I guess I'll recap there, you know, there's the get it done type approach. That's China. Let's do it. You know, and then there's, of course, you know, we have Singapore, which is saying we need water. This is how we're going to do it. Yes, let's get it done. So there's that approach, get it done. Then there's the, let's take our time and see where it works. And we see that in parts of the USA and maybe parts of Europe also. And then there's this sort of subset of that, which is, well, look here in these cities. There's all this space available. What can we do? Because it's not being used for anything else right now. And we want more people to live here, right? So those are three different kinds of approaches. All these approaches are probably not the get it done approach, but the, the two other approaches, they have to draw on, on a certain level of water awareness. If people don't realize the value there is, it's going to get hard to get their approval and, and to get them to understand and to support the initiative. So I think that's why it's important to tell what you said earlier, which is like, you know, there these uh, impressive numbers when you say that uh, every dollar you invest, you, you get $4 back on return on investment because it's seen, you know, uh, if not as a waste, uh, you, yeah, okay, it's good for nature, but yeah, nature, who cares about nature? I'm really being extreme here, but 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 that's important. This awareness is really something which is which is gold. I think it's a topic, you know, I've I've mentioned quite a lot on that microphone already, but for many people, water appears at the tap and disappears when you flush. And everything that happens beside that is not really important. And you know, there's this almost a urban legend, but I've heard it a lot from from my father-in-law, so I'm going to give him credit that probably it happened. And he was mentioning that once when he was uh, working with children and he asked them to draw a, a fish and one of those just draw a fish in a square because for him, a fish was, uh, you know, fitted a fish from McDonald's and doesn't have really a natural body or any kind of, of natural shape of, of a fish. So I don't know if this story is true or not, but to me, the, the water is a bit the same. If you never see it within your, your natural habitat, if you don't see it in the city, if you don't see it because you don't have the occasion to go out there and to see a river, how it really should look like, then it, it's just you know a canal or, or a fountain or something like that. And that's not a river. So how can we build this awareness? Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. And I appreciate you bringing that one, that one up, Anthony. So the idea behind this is cognitive connectivity. So the connection of our lived experience, our mind, to water around us. Right now, I got to be honest, like we don't really see water in our lives. I mean, I'm a sailor. I, I race yachts out of the Buffalo Yacht Club, and I, I'm a swimmer, and I grew up in water. So for me, being part of the water is just life. But for a lot of people, it isn't. And disconnection from water is sort of a subset 
of nature deficit disorder. So we've lost this connection because we're living in boxes ourselves. And I mentioned earlier that you know part of you know my my PhD work had this strong philosophical component. Well, let's talk about Heidegger for a second. There's this, this concept called Gestellen, the idea of inframing. And just like you mentioned, if fish is a square, why is that fish a square? It's because it's literally been inframed by the industrial process of you know fish hunting, fishing. And that child only sees fish in this way as a finished product. So how do we change that? And why do we change it? Well, we change it because it's worth it, as we've talked about earlier. But how do we change it for people? It's about cultural change. Remember, it begins with culture. It begins with communication and culture. And this was a, a thing that came up somewhere on LinkedIn. Oh, God, what was it? Patrick Decker of Xylem said something about how do we reconnect people to water? And it had something to do with one of Alex, I think Alex Pacini's posts. And there's this sort of negative reconnection, which is, oh, what if the taps run dry? That's scary, though. You know, that's the negative. That doesn't seem like a lot of fun. Like, I don't, I don't want to live in a world where there's where there's no water and it's a parched landscape and we're all dying. That sounds terrible. But there's a fun way to do it, too. And the fun way to do it is to have fun with water. So the way to do that is to bring people in connection with water through, say, their devices. How do we present fun water scenes? Hey, you're a person. You want to go have a good time? We're doing this thing by the water or on the water. We're going to have a big party. And I know that there's water festivals in very in various parts of the world. You know, World Water Day is, is you know, on the spring equinox, the vernal equinox in the north. And why are we having it then? It's still cold. Why don't we have Water Day in the north, you know, in the middle of summer when it's hot, when everyone's taking a vacation? And use that sort of cultural mechanism to say, remember, if you want to hang out on these hot days – this is where you do it, and it's a good time, and you had a great time with people. So how can we advocate for water through cultural narratives? Remember, stories shape belief, dictating action. Our stories tell us how to live, just like song lines in Australia. So what are our song lines for water? And how can we tell new stories? How can we tell new and positive stories that will reconnect us to water? Because that's where it begins, and it begins with children. And it begins with fun because between the carrot and the stick, the stick being, well, there's no more water coming out of the taps and the carrot saying water is sweet. The carrot's a lot sweeter. I think that fun is a great motivator for change, having a good time because it's positive and people become invested. You know, people follow fun. And if we make water fun and we make it relevant to people's lives through helping people to reconnect through all of their various social media, through all of their digital devices, through all of their act activities. And we tell stories where people can see themselves in the water. They can see themselves as part of a water landscape and as somebody who cares about the water. Then we will see a sea change, you know, no pun intended, but we'll see a sea change in water because water will become relevant again to people's lives in a positive and meaningful way. And then from there, we get major change. I suspect, just one idea. What's your role in that story? I'm working on it. <laughs> so I'll tell you. So I realized when I completed my, my PhD, when I finished my doctorate, I defended my dissertation. I realized that my goal is to do something about this, right? Because I've seen too much sickness and too much sadness in this world. And I've seen too much dirty water and unhappy people and just cities falling apart. And so what I've been working on lately is I'm working out a number of ideas to kind of create a 
you know, a, a water incubator, not your classic water technology incubator, but, you know, an incubator that focuses on solving water problems in the city of Buffalo. How do we help our local sewer and water supply systems? How do we help them make cleaner water? You know, how do we, and then how do we provide the arguments and the data and the reasoning and the fun, of course, to say, let's all get into this together. So that's, that's what I'm working on right now. I actually wrote up, I put this idea out there called Water 31. And I'll be honest, <laughs> you know, Water 31 is a really rough idea. It's a really rough idea. And it's probably not going to keep being called Water 31 because, you know, it, it needs a better name. It needs something that's more more fun and more functional. But the basic idea is that we're not solving water problems just for making money. We're solving them for social reasons and for environmental reasons. And we can prove that over time. Another thing I'm working on is a project that I'm tentatively calling the Waterways Project. And this is all stuff that's going on kind of behind the scenes in my own life. The Waterways Project is really about telling the story of water through the story of people. Because how do you connect people and water? Well, you connect people and water in stories. Because again, you know, stories, stories shape belief, dictating action. So the Waterways Project is related to themes such as social justice and freedom. So there's a there's an underground railroad. You know, the underground railroad was a a path by which enslaved people found freedom in the United in the United States. They would go from the south through the north into Canada, where they had freedom. And, you know, I'm a Freemason too. So I'm all about, you know, we are human beings. We are one people and we live for freedom and free will. So the story that connects water to people through the Underground Railroad and freedom is about the Niagara River at Niagara Falls. Because remember, just like the Rhine between France and Germany, the Niagara River was literally the last crossing to freedom for enslaved people seeking freedom. And as soon as you got across that river, you were in Canada. And so the water becomes a context and it showcases just how important, how important water is in our history and in the struggle for freedom and justice in our world. That's something that I, that I plan to work on more in May. You know, that, and that one's called the Waterways Project. And it gets to some of that positivity in water. And it creates that context for people to become aware of water. Because, you know, if you put water in people's faces and say, here, look at water, look at water, they're going to say, why should I look at water? And I'll say, well, look at this story about people and see what water did with it on the outskirts. You know, don't be direct about it. Create a context, the contextual value of water. So that's what I'm up to. My goal is to drive transformational change in the water world over time. I want to solve water. <laughs> that's an awesome mission. I'm really interested into your your concept of, of Water 31. Oh, of course, the Waterways Project as well, but uh, you mentioned that that's coming later. So um, I'll, I'll have to stay uh, awake to see it ha happening. But you, you mentioned Water Incubator. And um, I'd like you to just, can you just elaborate a bit more about that one? Because that's really intriguing to me. How does that translate in, in practical steps? Well, in practical steps, you know, the first step is to develop the idea into a, an operational idea, an idea that can be done. So, we're, so how do we do that? Do, do you have a concrete example of that? Hmm, I, you know, I don't really have a concrete example, but uh, you know, maybe I can have a parallel example. So here's another way of thinking of it. Where did Silicon Valley come from? Did it just come out of nowhere overnight? No. Back in, I think, the 1960s, and you know, I don't have all the names correct, 
This is a story I heard from a gentleman named Tom Khalil from Schmidt Futures. Years ago, I, my, my, my boss sent me to San Francisco to attend a meeting with a, you know, citizen schools when I was doing education work. And he told this great story about how, how do you do development? How, where did tech come from? And so Silicon Valley was built by concentrating people, people, money, and ideas. So that's the first real step. You got to take people who have ideas and time and put them together in proximity. And in this case, you know, I would be focusing on water. And then you've got to give them problems to solve and the creative energy and the support to get it done. So that's how incubation works. You walk in the door and say, I've got a water idea. And then we say, all right, let's figure out what problem we're solving with it. Is it a problem that is a problem that has economic value? Is it a problem that has economic and social value? Does it have environmental value? And then how do we create the right kind of organizational structure? You know, what kind of structure is going to get the job done? Is it a corporation that's for profit? Is it a, you know, in the United States, we have these things called benefit corporations. I think they're called certified B corporations. You know, I'm not expert in this area, but I'm learning, of course. Is it a company that isn't trying to make a ton of money, but, you know, wants to be solvent, charge for its services or for its products? Or is it going to be, you know, a nonprofit organization? So those are the three vehicles that we have. You know, I got a water idea. I walk in the door. All right, well, what problem are we solving? Okay, we've defined our problem. We need a clear definition for the problem. Then what's our vehicle? Is it going to be for-profit? Maybe some profit, like, you know, B corporation, or is it going to be non-for-profit? And how are we going to do that? That follows the typical model of, say, technology incubators. Then after that comes the really hard work, which is just figuring out how are you going to get the idea funded? Where's the funding going to come from? Do you go to venture capital? Because venture capital, from what I know, typically wants, you know, they want growth. They want massive growth. They want to make profit. That's okay. You know, that's part of the deal. We are all in the world together. Or is it something that's more innovative? You know, are we going to use something like crowdsourcing? Are we going to, you know, provide crowdsource investors, if that's the right word for it? Are we going to provide them with, you know, just feel good? You know, I'm going to put some money in because I want to see this work. So that's sort of like a, I guess, a passion investment. Then there's equity investors, you know, people who put money in who want to stake in the company. Then there's people who are putting in for profit. You know, they're, I think they're, uh, I forgot what they're called, but they're similar to venture capital, but on a smaller scale. So there's that, you know, we have our for-profit model with venture capital. We have, say, a hybrid model, which in- involves some, some degree of crowdsource funding. And then, of course, there's the, you know, the, the other end of it, which is sort of this government funding. And that's called push. The idea of push investment is that we've decided that it's the right thing to do. We know that it's worth it or we, dis- we agree that it's worth it. And we're going to put money into that. And so money for that push investment can come from government sources it can come from private foundations and other things like that. So we've gone from the idea to the problem to the vehicle and then the types of funding mechanisms to get the vehicle the vehicle off the ground. And then after that, we just have time and trial and error because <laughs> the only way to successfully solve water is going to be to go into the field and see if it works. You know, And why do it in a place like Buffalo, New York? Because there's opportunity here, because it's inexpensive to live here. And we're sitting, the Great Lakes are 20% of the Earth's fresh water. And they could use a hand being cleaned up and taken care of because there's, there's a lot of value there. So that's kind of how I'm approaching it. Hopefully that makes some sense. That makes a lot of sense. And actually <laughs> that, that, that gets me really curious about the next step. So um, whenever you hit your, your next milestone, I'd be really, really happy to take that as a, as a deep dive because that sounds really fascinating. I'm working on it. Seeing the birth of something, you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Well, you know... Think of it like this. Elon Musk wants to 
take us to Mars, right? Get us to Mars. Well, when we go to Mars, I want to build a home there for us. And if we could figure out how to take care of our water on Earth, remember, water means life. Water means food. Water means functioning ecosystems. This is the big craze. This is the craziest idea, Anthony. This is the totally crazy pie in the sky idea. If we can figure out water on Earth, how to manage it with nature, like nature, using whatever technologies and tools we can discover and create, we might have the beginnings of a way to not just restore our freshwater resources like the Aral Sea and the Great Lakes on Earth. We might have the beginnings of a way to terraform parts of Mars from the ground up. Remember, terraforming isn't just huge geoengineering projects. It's little stuff too, like how do we create a small watershed? So that's the big crazy goal. Elon Musk wants to take us to Mars. I want to give us a home when we get there. <laughs> that's crazy, <laughs> it's but you know. An analogy when you think of it, because right now all the exploration about Mars is to find water on Mars, and we're looking for water on Mars, and we don't really care about water on Earth, which is kind of ironic when you think of it but uh, right. I, I like your positive way to look at things which is okay we're looking for water on, on, on mars and you're looking at ways to make uh, something positive out of it so so yeah i, I think that makes a, an awesome conclusion to this deep dive if it's fine with you i propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions oh yeah of course i, I would love to thank you so much it's time for the rapid fire questions the rules of rapid fire questions are always the same. I try to keep the questions short and uh, it would be awesome if you keep the answers short as well. But don't worry, I'm not cutting the microphone. If there's something you want to express, you're free to do it. So my first question would be, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Oh, the most exciting project is this seminal Water 31 idea. And why? Because I'm passionate about it and it gets me jazzed. That's why. <laughs> What's your favorite part of your current job? Well, the favorite part of my current job is that I'm inventing a job for myself. <laughs> you know, I've been looking for work for, wow, almost two years now. And I realized that I just have to invent a job for myself. And so that's what I'm doing. It's great. It's scary, but it's great. It's an awesome creativity. And it, I, I can get it that it's scary, but you know, <laughs> um, I think that's something I, I've already discussed several times on, on that microphone. So I'm not going to bore too much everybody about it, but you know, when I was studying, when I did my water studies, to me, it wasn't an option to create your job. It wasn't an option to create anything. It was just, you know, you follow what's, what's existing. And uh, to me, it's awesome and refreshing to see people which are actively carving out their path. So, um, yeah, I'm admiring all the, the, the people that do that activity. So I'm admiring you for that. What's the trend to watch out for in this water industry? There's really three things I think that we should be looking at in the water industry in general. Uh, a big one is diversity in water. Now, that's important because new people, new ideas, new ways of looking at things, new solutions to bigger and more complex problems. So diversity in water is one. And Waleed Khoury has mentioned that before. Uh, also, of course, let's keep an eye on digital transformation. You know, just keep keep an eye on what's happening with the digitization of the water sector. You know, as we see more Internet of Things solutions roll out and we see more digital twinning of our water systems, I would expect to see a lot of growth in that area. And beyond that, I would really focus on things like looking at control systems, you know, and optimization of our water systems. And then let's see what else. What was the third one I was thinking of offhand? I wrote, I wrote down some notes beforehand. Oh, yeah, here's another one. This one's kind of a fun one. Forensic hydrology. 
you know, looking at the past hydrology of cities. And why would I look at that? Because guess what? As we can do a better job of bringing rivers back to cities, we've got to know where those old watercourses were. Because guess what? Why reinvent the wheel? If we can just open up an old watercourse and rewater it, half the work's done for us. So the three are diversity in water, digital transformation, and forensic hydrology. Sorry, I have to sidetrack here. <laughs> um, is there a dichotomy between these elements of digital transformation, which brings Internet of Things, which brings, I mean, name it, there's all these buzzwords, machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever, modeling to a certain extent. And does it build for a dichotomy between that and the fact that you want to put the human at the center of everything and uh, to, to tell stories and to, to see the connection between the human and the water. So somehow we want you to find back this millennia-old uh, contact we had between water and humans. And on the other end, a, a tool for that is digital transformation. Is there a disconnect or is it something I'm, I'm missing here? Our tools are only as smart as our people. So they go hand in hand. The way for us to reconnect with nature, to reconnect with water is, <laughs> I guess I'll use the word paradoxically or ironically again, is through those devices. You know, the only way to get there is through reconnecting through the digital because it helps us to see the bigger picture, which we can't see in our own limited perception. You know, all we see is the water coming in and out of the tap. But with digital, you know, with digital models, we can see more. So I think over time with that, we will see a greater a greater set of opportunities to reconnect with water because we work with our tools as one system. You know, think of it like um, the analogy is human augmentation, you know, using digital devices to enhance our minds, to enhance our memory, to enhance our functioning. Human augmentation is the human side of it. And then there's this other idea of ecological augmentation. And water is a big part of ecological augmentation. You know, using drones, digital tools, to create, this is another crazy idea, cybernetic ecology, you know, an ecology that is composed of humans, machines, and nature, because that's that's the future. We are one system. Yeah, it's interesting. I can see a trend with, with my guests to come with a um, very fascinating topic like that one uh, at the very end of, of conversations. And then I know that if I, if I embark on that route, then we're, we're good for another hour. <laughs> I had Nicolas Le Ravello on, on that same microphone who... Uh, who came in the rapid fire question with the concept of blockchain within um, within sustainable development and blockchain within carbon uh, footprints and and that's a fascinating topic. But if I enter now your concept of, of cybernetic ecology, I, I mean it's never ending. So <laughs> let me put that on, on ice, and we probably have to follow up at some point with that one. Of course, I'd love to. Let me bring you back on track with my my rapid fire questions. Uh, do you have sources to recommend uh, to keep up with? Uh, the water industry and the trends? You know, I, I've been really focused on academic reading, but I would say, you know, check out Smart Water Magazine. I had a really good experience publishing an article with Smart Water Magazine. And also keep an eye on, at least in the USA, keep an eye on what's going on with the Biden administration. You know, there, there's been some recent talk of investment in water, and I think it's going to be a positive thing. So look at those two things. And of course, you know, check the academic journals too, because that's where all the cutting edge stuff is. Yeah, actually, 100... 11 billion dollar investment in water infrastructure uh, i mean i hope that's an example of how people want to go out of this this full COVID period because probably investment is going to be a, an important part of it and if we can leverage 
the, the opportunity to in, invest into our water systems, then probably it's a win-win. But again, if we enter that route, uh, I'm sidetracking you again. <laughs> Last question. Would you have someone to recommend that we should definitely invite on that same microphone? Yes, I do. I, I say, is it okay if I give a few different recommendations? Of course. Well, let's see. Who comes to mind right, right now? If you haven't already talked with him, Bashkar Tatwandi is you know, a passionate man for his work in India, dealing with, you know, dealing with wastewater. And so he's somebody who, honestly, he's gold. He, he knows the scene and he can talk about it intelligently as an expert from, from the Indian water world. Then, of course, there's, a, there's two folks in Australia that I can think of. There's, there's Owen Richards, who is somewhere in the south of Australia. I can't remember. I think, it's, I think he's near Melbourne. Then there's a Craig from Perth, who's dealing with some innovative sort of water filtration for stormwater. And then there's Denise. Denise, either Hall or Mall from South Africa. And then there's, oh, what's, what's his name? Oh, I forgot his name. <laughs> Yo, he's, he's, he's an ex, he's, he's a guy who, I had a conversation with him about blockchain and accountability for water, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, is it Virushan? Yeah. Virushan, whose name, whose last name I can't remember, who's also from South Africa. Virushan would be an excellent follow-up to Nicola on the whole blockchain water accountability type talk. So it sounds like a I have a nice schedule for the next weeks. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, last question. Uh, if people want to follow up with you, where can I redirect them? Well, the best thing to do is just, you know, get a hold of me. Get a hold of me on LinkedIn. I took an Easter break, but I, I regularly check LinkedIn. Or I'll, I'll give my email address and people can feel free to email me if they wish. You know, the, the truth is, Anthony, I love to talk with people. I love, I love having conversations about water in all the intersections of water. So please, I encourage people to talk and I always, have a, I always have the time of day to talk about water. Awesome. That makes for the best conclusion there is. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks for, for your time. Thank, thanks for all the, the valuable uh, inputs that you've, you've, you've shared us today. And uh, I think we have some follow-ups to schedule the, in the future to follow your ventures and to uh, probably deep dive into this, this topic of, um, of augmented uh, <laughs> ecology or whatever you want to call it, but right. it's really interesting. Well, I'm honored and humbled that you invited me to this interview, and it has been a tremendous pleasure, Anthony. It has been a tremendous pleasure to have this conversation, and I certainly hope that in the near future, we'll follow up again. We'll talk further because there's a lot of work to do. You know, essayons. Let's try. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.